All right. Well, hey, I'm sleepy. I don't know about you. I was up super early this morning and uh, our our first service, this is our third service. Our first service had about 80 folks in it who uh, came in the midst of the flood. Like it was crazy. Our youth building was flooding. Our lights were going out in here and flickering uh, made me thankful that we will be uh, maybe hopefully, Lord willing, celebrating right now our last Christmas in this building while it's still standing. That's nice. Of course, uh, this week has been a little crazy already. Our, uh, like you heard from during our announcement, the devotional that we made and spent uh, the team spent a lot of hours formatting that, writing that, uh, and then our printer went out on Friday and nobody was at work to uh, at the printer place to fix it and the other churches in our association uh, were not uh, open on Friday so we couldn't print anymore and of course it's available online you can get it there from the the email that we sent out but you know that went wrong maybe you've had one of those weeks uh, shopping and wrapping and you're not done yet and you're stressed out and me just talking about it is making it worse uh, so I would just ask that you slow down and focus your attention just for a brief moment on what really matters. Uh, throughout this series in this Advent year, we've been focusing our attention on a, a handful of the benedictions found in the Bible. And remember, if you've been here, you know that a benediction is simply a blessing. It's a blessing that's usually spoken over the gathered assembly of God's people. In the Old Covenant, Old Testament, that was the nation of Israel. Uh, in the Under the New Covenant, uh, we have uh, inherited the blessings of both the Old and New Covenant in the church. And so the benediction is that blessing, blessing that often a pastor will speak with hands raised over the congregation announcing God's blessing on those who have gathered who are in Christ and my guiding principle throughout this Advent series has been this that the Advent moved the benediction from aspiration to actuality. Now I chose those words carefully because they both have A's in them. That was my only reasoning behind that. What I mean by it is that the arrival or the appearance of Christ on earth like forever move the, the blessing of God from something that we aspire to, that we hope for, to reality, to something that we have. Like remember, as we said in that first sermon, that the, a blessing on its own may sound nice and make me feel good, but it doesn't have any power. Well, in fact, can it possibly hold up like to the light of reality? After all, how can God bless Sinners like us. I mean, God is immutable. He does not change. He cannot change. And He will not bless sin. Like He will never bless that which He has forbidden. But we saw in week one uh, that far from blessing sin, God made Jesus to become sin for us. Like the Son of God took our curse. It was placed on Him so that we might receive His blessing. And from Numbers chapter 6, in that first week, we saw that Jesus came to bring us into the presence of God. To grant us hope, the hope of all hopes. Like as you read that Numbers 
sixth blessing. It's filled with this imagery of God turning His face toward us. Of God shining the light of His presence over us. Like that is the longing of the Old Testament saint. Like as you read through the Psalms, there is nothing better for the psalmist than the thought that God would look upon him with favor. And so when we, when we look at uh, number six, the idea is that because of Jesus, like all of that promise which seems so out of reach has now been made possible. Jesus did that for us. And then in second, the second week in Revelation 1, uh, Pastor Zach preached a great message, right? That's it? I mean, Zach's right there, guys. And now he's crying. You, man, that was, that was, I'm sorry, Zach. I didn't expect that. Uh, but he showed us from Revelation 1 that Jesus actually came to ordain us as priests in a new priesthood so that we would be granted peace and with God and to make us peacemakers, to share that message with others. I mean, that's pretty amazing when you think about the priesthood of the Old Testament that was restricted to one tribe and one family. The tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron, as it spread out, they could be the high priests in order, uh, but of course they were always just about one generation away from completely blowing it. That's not the priesthood we inherit. That's not the priesthood that Jesus ordained us into as His priest, but we follow the example of our high priest, Jesus Himself. And then in week three, from Philippians 4, Pastor Michael showed us how Jesus came to lift us out of defining our lives simply by our circumstances. Which is what most people do. Like whatever is going on in your life, especially in the holiday season, where some people go into some deep lows emotionally. Like when things are going wrong, that affects your emotion. It affects how you see life, how you see God, how you see yourself, all of that. And Jesus came to lift us out of defining our lives by our mere circumstances. Instead, He wants to grant us a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Like the appearance of Jesus made the blessing of God something we have right here and right now. Not something we just hope for at some time in the future. You know, this past week on Wednesday, I was at uh, a friend of uh, ours, Amy and I were at a friend of ours house for dinner, and they showed us this great uh, children's book uh, called This is the Christmas Story. A really, really good book. And uh, and so we, we read it while we were there. I got a copy of it. And I thought it was so good because it's, it really is truth in advertising. Like a lot of times you'll read a book and you'll think, okay, is that really what it's about? It almost tricks you. No, this is all about what the Christmas story truly is. And the opening lines in this book are these. The Christmas story began long ago but it did not begin with a baby. It began with a promise. And then the rest of the book simply traces us through the whole Old Testament and promises about the coming of the hero, the coming of the Savior, the coming of the King, the coming of the prophet, the coming of the priest, the coming of Messiah. 
and how Israel responded to that, all anticipating and longing for the appearance of Christ. I mean, the first promise about Jesus actually comes in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 15. And it's a promise that Jesus, when He comes, will defeat our enemy. In fact, it's a promise that God made not to Adam and Eve, but God actually makes this promise to Satan, kind of taunting him. Like God says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Like what does Satan, what does God say to Satan? He's like, hey, there's coming a child born of a woman and when he comes, he is going to crush you under his boot. And of course, John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 explains it this way. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Like Jesus came to obliterate all that the enemy brought. This accuser of the brethren. This, this devil. Like Jesus came to make right everything He turned wrong. And to crush Him under His shoe. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 unpacks it a little bit more with these words. It says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son of God also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die, and only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could He set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of death. I mean, that promise made complete in Christ. Thousands of years later, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, we saw this a few weeks ago, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Like the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, every page, every line, every story, every hero, Every image, all of it, points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus Christ. If you read the Old Testament and don't see Jesus, you miss the point of the Old Testament. I love how the New Living Translation puts Second uh, Corinthians 1.20. It says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Like, I love that. Which kind of leads us to ask, just how many promises has God made? I mean, after all, the Bible really is a book that's full of promises. I mean, what is a covenant? Like both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What is a covenant but a binding promise? Like that's what a covenant is. It's a, it's a promise with a hook. It's a promise with a consequence. It's a, com a promise with like a guarantee. I will do this thing and here's the evidence. Here's the proof. Here's the sign. R.C. Sproul writes of covenants and promises. He says, we exist as the people of God because He has made and kept promises to His people. We can be a part of the family of God because our God makes and keeps His covenants. God never breaks or changes His promises. Covenants are everlasting promises to which God committed Himself forever. 
Now for some promises or covenants in the Scripture, they are what we would call unilateral, meaning that only one side has to swear allegiance to this. Like, it's going to happen regardless of if you get on board or not. I mean, for example, Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Like, that's what God is doing. That's what God is ultimately going to do. There's going to come a day when everyone everywhere will recognize what God has done. They'll connect the dots from creation to the Creator. Like you can either get with the program or get out of the way, but God is going to do that. Right? I mean, another unilateral promise is found in uh, chapter 12 of Genesis when God speaks to a man named Abram and He says to him, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is what I'm going to do. Count the stars. Count the sands on the ski on, on the seashore. So shall your offspring be. That's a unilateral promise from God. But there are also some bilateral promises, meaning that God makes a promise, but He links it to our obedience in some way, our activity. And here's one of those. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Will everyone be saved? No. Only those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a bilateral promise from the Scripture. And so with that said, how many promises are there in the Bible? Well, years ago, one student of the Bible spent about a year and a half to two years reading and rereading his Bible and carefully marking every promise of every kind. Promises made between people, promises that we make to God. And he added them all up and then categorized them. And he came up with uh, the fact that God has made a total of 7,487 promises in the Bible to mankind. I mean, there are other kinds of promises, but God has made 7,487 promises to mankind. For every eight promises in the Bible, seven of them are found in the Old Testament. Which means, if you haven't read the Old Testament, then you are missing out on 87.5% of all the promises of God. In fact, in just three books in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they have over 1,000 promises each, which means that these three books account for one-third of all the promises of the Bible. I mean, just a brief commercial break here. Guys, read your Bible. Seriously. Like, make 2024 the year of the Bible for you. Like you need to read the Word of God. If you haven't read the Bible, I understand if you've been a Christian for like a month or two months and you haven't read the whole Bible, I'll give you that. Alright? But if you are a believer in Christ and you've been a Christian for a couple years, five years, ten years, and you've never read the entire Bible, there's only one thing you need to do. Repent. Like God has given us His Word and He wants us to dwell in it. In fact, last year, Amy and I, my wife, gave our church family the Dwell app for the year. 
So you're able to listen to the Bible, different translations, different readers, different background music. It's a really cool app. And uh, this coming year, the church is continuing that blessing for our church family so that you continue to use the Dwell app. But uh, so far, as of this morning, about two and a half hours ago, our church family has listened to nearly 274,000 minutes of the Bible this year. I mean, that's 15,000 or more minutes every single month. That is awesome. Well done. Like, well done, church family, for doing that. But I just encourage you, guys, if you've never read through the whole Bible, do it this year. There's a reading plan on the Dwell app called the Whole Bible uh, Straight Through 365 Days Through the Bible. That's a great one. If you if maybe you want to slow down a bit and just read the New Testament, there's 365 days through the New Testament, New Testament a year. That's a great plan. And then there's a third plan you got this morning when you came in, and it's called the Shred. And uh, this is the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in 30 days. Now guys, I would encourage you, if you've been a Christian for a couple years and you haven't read the whole Bible, this is the best thing you can do for yourself in 2024. Like, immerse yourself in the Word of God. You won't be able to do much more. It'll take you a couple hours, two and a half, three hours a day to listen and follow or listen and read as you go. Uh, But what else are you going to do? Watch TV? Like, cheer for teams you don't care about? Waste your time and energy? Read the Bible. Like, I was challenged a few years ago by my son Riley to do this shred. And so I decided to do it, and I've done it ever since then. And Riley said, you can do this, I'm going to do it. Like, Zach's going to do it, a bunch of other people are going to do it. So I decided to do it, and I finished it in 29 days just to beat him. (laughs) I couldn't have my son read the Bible faster than me. I had to win. And so take up that challenge. Men, especially in here. All you dads and husbands, you are the shepherd of your family, their pastor. You are the spiritual leader in your home. You are the first line of defense against satanic attack. And if you are not armed with the Word of God, you're fighting naked. Don't be a fool. Arm yourself with the Word of God. I would encourage every young man here especially, 16 to 35, do the shred. I double dog dare you. We'll be hearing a little bit more about this. One thing you'll get out of the shred is this. You will learn to distinguish the voice of your Father from all the other voices in the world. Like you'll be able to, you'll be able to recognize the voice of the Spirit of God as He speaks in ways that you've longed for and hoped for, but you didn't put in the effort to make it happen. Put in the effort. Read the Word of God. Now, with that said, with our minutes remaining, I want to look at a few of these 7,487 promises. Just a little bit. Look at as many as possible. Uh, Uh, These are made available to us because of what Jesus has done. Because God sent His Son as we celebrate on Christmas. 
We can read the promises we're about to read as something that we know we can have, not just something that we hope for or long for. And so since our time is limited, we're just going to look at some of the 3,086 promises found in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. The first one is this, from Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. Because of Jesus, God will never forget us. Because of Jesus, God will never forget us. God says to the prophet, can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Or have no compassion for the child she has born? Well, of course not. But then God says, though she may forget, I will not forget you. And then he makes this statement. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Christian, if you ever doubt the love of God for you, just look at the hands of Jesus. Like Jesus has engraved you on the palms of His hands for all eternity. Like He will wear the wounds of the cross in heaven forever. I mean, we, like that's something we definitely don't deserve. As Tim Keller puts it so eloquently, he says, because we forgot God, we deserve to be forgotten. Like for most people, you know this, God is an afterthought. From their birth until they lay their head down for death, they have very few thoughts of God. No one pursues God. No one goes after or seeks God. God first must go after them. And the, the natural and best and fair consequence of people made by God forgetting God is that God would forever forget them. But as Keller writes, he says, because we forgot God, we deserve to be forgotten. But on the cross, Jesus was forgotten so that we would always be remembered. The promise from Isaiah 49 is because of Jesus, God will never forget you if you are in Christ. But there is something He will forget. Isaiah 43, verse 25 tells us, tells us that because of Jesus, God will not remember your sins. I mean, think about it. For those of you in Christ, the things that you can't forget, God doesn't remember. That sin that haunts you, that failure that just feels like it's a weight on your shoulder, the thing you cannot forget, the thing you cannot shake, Scripture tells us that God will not remember. I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for My own name's sake and remembers your sins no more declares the Lord. Does God have a bad memory? Of course not. I mean, certainly He can recall your sins, but what it means is that He doesn't remember our sins against us anymore. Instead, He remembers the righteousness of Christ for us on our behalf. Like for those who are in Christ, God has already judged your sin in Him. Because every sin will be judged. 
Like the Scripture makes it clear that everyone will give an account for all of their sin, regardless of how small. Every careless word or thought or action will be judged by God. But Jesus tells us in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes in Him who sent Me has currently eternal life. He does not come into judgment in the future, but has already passed from death to life. To which I would reply, when? Like, I think I would remember that. Right? Like, if you died and then they brought you back, wouldn't you remember that? Wouldn't that be an anecdote you kind of would weave into every kind of party you went to? Yeah, I was dead for like three minutes. You know, I died on the operating table three different times and they brought me back. Like, I've heard people tell stories like that. But according to Jesus, we have a story like that. If you are in Christ, you have already, past tense, moved from death to life. How is that possible? Because on the cross, Jesus became you. He took your sin and He passed for you from death back into life. Scripture puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Isaiah 1.18 puts it this way, Come now, let us reason together. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are like red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How is that even possible? Well, it's possible because as we read in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36, because of Jesus, God has made a new covenant with His people. In Jeremiah 31, we read verse 31, God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Like God's saying, listen, I'm going to do something fresh and new. I've made promises and I've made covenants. The problem is you never keep them. Like the problem is I give you my law and within five seconds you're making a golden calf and worshiping it. The problem is not the law. The problem is you. Like you can't keep the rules that I give you. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, we read, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That means that nobody will be in heaven because they were good. Like good he- Heaven is not filled with good people and hell with bad people. Heaven is filled with forgiven people who were never good by themselves. Like no one gets to heaven by being good. The Scripture makes it clear there is none righteous, no, not one. Jesus Himself said there is none good except God. And so God goes on the promise in verse 33 of, I, of Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put My law within them 
and I will write it on their hearts. Like I said, the law is not the problem. We don't need a new and better law. The law is good. We're bad. The law is not the problem. We are. What we need is a new heart, which is what God promises us in the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules, declares the Lord because of Jesus. God has made a new covenant with His people. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. In fact, that's the overarching theme of the New Testament book of Hebrews. Like if you want to understand the Old Testament, read the book of Hebrews. Because the, in from the opening words in the book of Hebrews, the author makes a case for a group of Christians who have a Jewish heritage that everything in the Old Testament finds its ultimate fulfillment and perfection in the person and work of Christ. He starts with these words, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 87.5% of all the promises of God right there. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, God's final and definitive Word, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. Like we sing, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down His sweet head. You picture Jesus, this babe, laid in a manger, maybe grasping in one hand a piece of straw in which He's made His bed. And yet, by the Word of His power at that very moment, He upholds the entire universe. God in flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And so for the next 13 chapters, the author of the book of Hebrews drives home the point of the superiority of Christ to everything that has gone before. He doesn't do it to slam the Old Testament. He loves the Old Testament. He loves the Hebrew Scriptures. He loves the law of God and the prophets. The example of people like Moses and David and Enoch. He does it to say, listen, all of this is good, but it's just a sign pointing to Jesus. It's just a shadow, but Christ is the substance. And so an outline of the book of Hebrews might be as simple as this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the prophets of old. He's God's final Word. Jesus is better than the angelic messengers. Like He is the Creator of those angelic messengers. Jesus is a better Moses, the great Deliverer. Jesus is a better High Priest because He doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for His own sins before He offers a sacrifice for the people. Jesus, in fact, offers a better sacrifice. According to Jesus Himself from John 10-11, Jesus said, I am the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd 
lays down His life for the sheep. See, Jesus offers a better sacrifice because Jesus Himself is that sacrifice. And because of that, Jesus is a better Adam keeping the law of God. He's a better Abraham fulfilling the promise of God. He's a better David ruling the kingdom with righteousness. He provides a better and more lasting Sabbath. Jesus offers a better and eternal kingdom. And the book of Hebrews captures all of this by basically saying this, that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And all of these claims kind of reach their crescendo in a benediction, which is what this series is all about. And so as I read this, I want you not just to hear the words of your pastor, but I want you to receive this promise from your Father as if it's written to you. Because church, it is. This is your Father and His Word for you. So this is what He speaks over you. Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21 says this, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Can I just point out a couple things about this benediction before we close? The first thing I want to point out is that this benediction begins and ends with Jesus. The blood of the new covenant and the one who receives all the glory, Jesus. This benediction is made possible because of Him. They would just be words on a page and an empty promise if it wasn't for the sacrifice of Christ and the blood of the eternal covenant. This benediction is also a declaration of absolute confidence in God. The writer of Hebrews believed this. He knew this to be true. Like he had seen the track record of God in making and keeping promises, and he just drew this out of the Scriptures. Out of the history of God's people people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a declaration of absolute confidence in a God of peace. Which maybe from where you're standing, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you understand the Scriptures, that's a huge deal. Because the disposition of God towards sinners is anything but peace. It's wrath. It's judgment. The hostility that God has with our enemy is the same hostility He has with mankind who is rebelling against Him. And yet, we read in these words that this is now peace is the eternal and unchanging disposition of God toward all of those who are in Christ. It's not something we hope for. It's something we have. And it's made possible by the blood of the eternal covenant. The blood of Christ 
purchasing all the promises of God. I mean, these promises, remember, go way, way back. Like it started with a promise in the garden, which was really just a taunt to the enemy. A child born of a woman will crush you under his feet. And it leads to a promise made to a man on a hillside named Abram. I will bless you and one will come forth from you who will be a blessing to all the nations. And then a king would receive a promise that someone from your lineage would sit upon the throne and shepherd the people of God into eternity. And hundreds of years later, a prophet would be promised that this shepherd king who is to come that a virgin would give birth to a son who would be called Emmanuel. God with us. Like the eternal covenant was guaranteed because of the blood of Christ and because of the fact that Jesus was brought back from the dead. Which you read right here. He brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Like That's God's way of saying, here's how you can trust Me. If He lives, you will live. If He lives, all My promises are true. And so Christ is the yes and amen to all the promises of Scripture. It identifies Him as the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the great shepherd because He lays down His life for His sheep. No one takes My life from Me, but I lay it down of My own accord. And because He does, the dilemma we faced with the law of God is over. Like He says, that this great shepherd of the sheep it will equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him. Like Paul writes it this way. He says, uh, as you have obeyed me when I'm there, obey me even when I'm gone. Like work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who works in you both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Like God changes our want to. He changes our desire. He gives us a love not just for His Son, but for His ways for His precepts, for His law. He changes us from the inside out just like He promised. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My ways. All of these promises are for you if you step through the door of one bilateral promise. There is something you have to do. And this is what you have to do that opens the door for the blessing that's on the screen here. Here's the bilateral promise made by Jesus Himself in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Does everyone have everlasting life? No. Only those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Like that's the Christmas story. 
That's the gospel. Like God sent His Son into the world to save sinners like us. And all we need to do is say, Jesus, I believe that and I want that. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It can be as simply as simple as, God, I, I need You. I believe Your Son died for me. Save me. Rescue me. Make me what You want me to be. I trust You. Guys, that's the Christmas story. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this table of blessing and this table of remembrance. Lord, this is a table we kind of connect with Easter and the Last Supper. But it's a table that preaches a message to us all about Christmas. God, that our sin problem was so severe that we... We couldn't clean ourselves up. We couldn't get a better set of rules to try to obey. We couldn't work our way to You. We couldn't good our way to God. We were in desperate straits. But You sent Your Son into the world. Born of a woman. Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. And we thank You for this table and what it represents to the flesh of the incarnate Son of God broken for us. The blood of the eternal Son of God poured out for us. And Lord, I pray now as we remember the sacrifice of Your Son, we thank You and ask that You would make this for us an experience of communion with You. That we would see that this bread is true food and this cup is true drink and may you use it for the spiritual nourishment of your bride through Christ our Lord we pray amen